This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for The Ankler. My father was in the electronics business, and he once told me about a machine that was essentially a giant Cuisinart with an open top. I have no idea what the machine was supposed to do. I'm sure my father tried to explain it to me, and I pretended to understand him. But for our purposes here, just accept that there's a spinning machine with an open top, and it's used to do something really dangerous. Now, here's what's interesting about this machine, because even though you only need one person to work it, Two people are assigned to it at all times. The machine spins so quickly that it almost looks like it's not spinning at all. The interior centrifuge is so fast and so powerful that if you stare at it long enough, which you kind of have to do if you're going to use it properly, your brain forgets that it's moving because your eyes are telling it that it's not moving. So your hand naturally reaches into the machine in an absent-minded way, which is when you lose your hand up to the elbow. Accidents, when they occur, apparently are spectacular spectacularly bloody and painful. That's what the other person is there for, to remind the first person that the machine is really spinning. That's his whole job. Just stand there, eyes on the other guy, ready to remind him of what he already knows, but could very easily forget. I mean, it's hard to know which job is the hardest, actually. The first person doing the skilled labor of working the machine or the second person doing the psychological labor of reminding the first person that his brain is lying to him. In other words, both of those people working together would be excellent studio and network executives. One person to get into stuff and think about stuff and try to shape and affect the shows getting made, and one person to tell that person to stop doing that. If you think about the most spectacular examples of corporate failure, it's never because the management team was asleep at the switch. Big companies don't make errors because they're not working or thinking hard enough. They mess up when they see the cylinder and it's not spinning, and they think, maybe I'll just reach in and fix this one thing. In the late 1980s, Coca-Cola, perhaps the most successful consumer brand in world history, decided that the only way to solidify their position as the manufacturers of the most popular drink on earth was by changing the recipe for the most popular drink on earth. The result was a PR and sales disaster. People who love the taste of Coca-Cola, the executives discovered to their shock, did not want that taste to change. What Coca-Cola was selling as the new Coke was something that no one wanted to buy. The executives and marketers who made that disastrous decision weren't stupid. On the contrary, they were smart. The smartest people, I'm sure they would have insisted at the time, in the room. Armed with charts and surveys and market testing results, they thought and thought and overthought themselves into nearly destroying one of the most iconic brands in the world. People want new, you can hear them say. People want something different. The truth is, at no point in history has anyone really wanted anything new or different. What we want when we're really being honest with ourselves and each other, which doesn't happen often, but does happen is exactly what we've always liked. Just maybe a little updated here and there, a new font, say a nacho cheese version that often leaves the people running the machine totally dissatisfied because they want to deliver new and different and revolutionary. They want to put their hands in the machine. A spinning machine that no one understands that can chew up your arm is a pretty good way to describe the entertainment business in 2022. As a matter of fact, 
The CW Broadcast Network, for example, has changed hands, sort of, which isn't unusual and will be happening more and more in the coming years as studios and streamers and networks combine and break up and recombine as the collection of executives and investment bankers stick their hands into the machine. Now, what happened in a nutshell was this. Nexstar, a large TV station group, actually the largest one, took an ownership stake in the CW Network and announced that they were adjusting the programming mix of the network to more closely align it with their average viewers, which is... Sort of the basic rule of all show business, give the people what they want. What they came up with is a mix of police procedurals, one-hour adult dramas, and comedies, including multi-camera comedies. In other words, what they came up with is television, or at least television as some of us remember it. And full disclosure, I'm personally thrilled with this development because I like television as I remember it especially multi-camera comedies, which I remember being both a lot of fun to make and also pleasantly remunerative. Because the new owners of the CW disclosed to widespread interest in the show business community that the average age of a CW viewer is 58, it had the rare effect of making a lot of people like me feel positively young. But it raised a question, why then did the programming of the network up till now center mostly on sexy teen romance dramas and sexy teen superheroes and supernatural sexy teen creatures? Of course, the actor teens on those teen shows aren't teens either. Some of them look about 35, to be honest. Some of them may actually be closer in age to the viewers than they are to the characters they're portraying. But still, why didn't the network, which struggled with audience numbers and never quite managed to break out hit, at some point just look up and notice the audience they had? I mean, it sounds so simple. Just don't put your hand in the machine, but it's a hard thing to do, actually. It's like this. You you can always tell who the writer is in any audition. If you're an actor and you're reading for a role, the process goes like this. You get the material you're supposed to read. You sweat and stew over it for as many days or hours that you can. You worry about what you're wearing and whether you're too old or young. You read and reread the material until the paper was printed on as smudged and wrinkled and frayed like an old towel. And then you sit and you wait until they call your name and you go into the room and you meet the team and you make awkward small talk and there's a pause and then someone says whenever you're ready and then you do your thing you read the material usually with someone and you give it everything you've got and the way you can know instantly who the writer is whose lines you're reading is this way the writer will be head down reading along not watching not looking up but head down these are my words i'm following along hearing my words read And it's the same if you book the job and are at the table reading or the run-through. Only this time, it's often whole teams of people, writers and executives and people whose reason for being there, you have zero idea, all heads down, looking at the script, making little scritchy, scratchy pencil marks, frowning alarmingly. I'm not sure why we do that. Because it doesn't really matter what's in the script. The audience doesn't read that part. We don't send them the scripts and outlines and character breakdowns. What matters is the show. That's what people watch. But for most of the preparation, a lot of us are just heads down reading. If you do that too much, you miss things. You miss interesting facial expressions, which in many ways is a perfect description of the entire art of acting. Someone who makes interesting facial expressions. And you miss opportunities to make things better. And of course, you miss enormously wrong acting choices that need to be stopped in their tracks. In a way, of course, we all spend a lot of time with our heads down, 
missing things. We like having something to look at, a script, a phone, that keeps us from looking up at a changing and unpredictable landscape, that keeps us from noticing that our audience is 58 and our shows skew 18. Friends of mine were once producing a pilot, and in one of the early scenes, the star of the show was introduced to a supporting character. He had already heard about him in the previous scene, so when they were introduced, the supporting character was supposed to say something like, oh, you've heard of me. One actor came in and said it this way. You've heard of me? Like, terrified, caught. You've, you've heard of me? It was a great choice, and when he left the room, everyone agreed he was the best so far. And then another actor came in and said it this way. You've heard of me? Like, proud. Of course you've heard of me. I'm famous. Ah, you've heard of me. It was also a great choice, and when he left the room, everyone agreed he was the best so far. The writers hadn't planned it that way, of course. They hadn't heard it in their heads like a big, revealing piece of character dialogue. But two actors came in, and because the writers had their heads up, meaning they were watching a performance open to the three-dimensional version of their two-dimensional printed page, they discovered that the character they had written had two very distinct and opposite traits. And the thing to do was to pick one, but they didn't do that. They picked both. They made two characters out of one, and they hired both actors. This never happens, by the way, if you're an actor hearing this and thinking, wow, cool, that could happen to me. No, do not, do not plan on that. But anything can happen if we keep our heads up, which is maybe why we don't do it that often. For some reason, we'd rather keep putting our hands in the machine. Anything can happen when we stop doing what we're doing and we look up at the audience and we notice who is watching. And that's it for this week. Next week, back to work for the Ankler. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot.